25 years on the PGA Tour and a lifetime member of the PGA Tour and PGA of America. Jay Delsing brings you his perspective on one of the world's greatest games as a professional golfer and network broadcaster. It's the game that connects the pros and the average Joes. Brought to you by Whitmore Country Club. Golf with Jay Delsing is now on 101 ESPN. Good morning, St. Louis. This is Golf with Jay Delsing. I'm your host, Jay Delsing, and with me is my longtime friend and caddy, John Perlis. Perly, good morning. Glad to be here, Jay. Good morning. Well, guys, we have formatted our show just like a, a typical round of golf. Our first segment is called On the Range. It's brought to you by 20 Minutes to Fitness. 20 Minutes to Fitness once a week is all you need. I was able to talk with Justin, our friend at Golf Tech, and we had some ideas on how to make your game better. Well, it starts from the pre-swing uh, aspects of it first. And uh, to do that, it takes good oversight with a, with a PGA professional, preferably. But uh, to get more consistent in their game, uh, it takes a good foundation to go on. And I would say, you know, Jay, in 95% of the evaluations we give, people, people want consistency. In fact, that word is said all the time uh, among the first question or two that we ask, hey, what's really frustrating your game? Well, I'm really not consistent. I want to be consistent. And so I would say that that when people say that, we respond by by saying, hey, look, here's just a a good acronym that you can remember, and and if we could just build on this acronym uh, of – uh, of the setup pr- principles and fundamentals, then we'll be then we'll be, we'll be off and running. And that acronym is GASP. I like I like to use the word acronym the acronym GASP G A A S P. And uh, the G stands for grip. The A stands for aim. The other A is alignment. The S stands for stance, and the P stands for posture. And we go from there, and we highlight in each of those areas. Uh, are there any breakdowns? And if there's breakdowns in those areas, we're not going to start to swing the golf club, at least efficiently. And so that's where we would start. Oh, we man, start I, to peel I, back I, the onion, so to speak, and, and, and see uh, what their frustrations are beyond that. And then we see more deficiencies and more swing breakdowns. And, and, uh, and then we can, we, can, we can build a plan from there. Uh, but I like to start with that acronym. That's great stuff. It's always good to hear from Justin and the folks at Golf Tech. I want to talk, Pearl, I found something really cool that I really think is going to help people with their game. And it was it's called Butch Harmon's Quiet Skills. Okay, and what this is, so when I'm doing the research and trying to figure out these shows and trying to figure out what's going to be interesting and how we can really help people with their game, the one thing that, that I know as a tour player that I wish I would have known when I first got on tour, but it probably took me 10 years to figure it out, is my setup Hmm. was crucial. My setup was crucial. And how many times did you and I talk about trying to get to the point where we played from the same position body-wise every single day? And it sounds like a very simple, the concept is simple, but man, is it hard to know where you are in space. I can remember Ernie Els, once upon a time, when he was out there uh, winning U.S. Opens, and they asked kind of what's the key. And he said, if I can get my alignment right, if I feel kind of stacked up where I want to be, I'm going to be competitive. And if I can't, I'm going to be going home. It's key. It's huge. But it's not that easy. It is not that easy. And one of the things that Butch says 
in um, he gives three he lists three components. I'm going to go to the the second one he lists first because mm-hmm. I think that's the most important. I think it's probably the most interesting for the for the listeners too. The setup, and Butch says it takes no skill to set up properly to the ball, which is interesting because it doesn't. But what it does take is some awareness of where your body is as it relates to itself, kind mm-hmm. of. I know that sounds like out there, but it's, you know, where is my right arm in my setup position as it relates to my left arm? And where is it, where are my shoulders as they relate to my hips and my feet and things like that? And he um, talks about something that I'm a huge proponent of. He says, get your club face down first. We talked about this earlier. I'm going to reiterate it. Get your club face down first. We want that club face pointed, folks, where you want your ball to start. So if you want to start this thing at the flagstick, aim that that uh, club face directly at the flagstick. And then adjust your, your feet accordingly. And he says, according to Bush, Bush, excuse me, the best example of this was Greg Norman in the 90s. And if you remember the way Greg was meticulous about his setup, man, I got to play with Greg Norman a couple of times. Yeah, he could drive the ball long and straight. I remember watching that setup. Yeah, it was really, really something. And I think this is something that you, that as amateurs, you're looking for things you can control, things that you can rely on. Mm-hmm. I mean, work on your setup. Get your feet headed down in a direction that is parallel to your your you know your knees your hips and your shoulders stack that body on top of itself and for the folks that slice watch your shoulders don't let your 99% of your problem with slicing is cuz your shoulders are too open and a lot of times it's caused by a high right for right-handed golfers a high right forearm Get those things stacked. Get them parallel to each other. Headed down, you know, that train track theory. Your body lines are stacked on top of one another, and that's the left side of the track. And then your club face is the right side of the track, and those things need to be parallel. When you say body lines, explain that. Real simple. Feet, knees, hips, shoulders. Stack them on top of one another and get them all. If they're stacked on top of each other, you're going to be able to draw a line from each component. It's going to be parallel to that to that right side track. Another thing that he talks about that I that I learned from my father was a short term bad. You have a short term memory for bad things and a long term memory of good things, and to constantly remember the good things, talk about the good things. Man, wasn't that really cool? How can you believe that putt went in? Remember that. The bad things, get rid of it. Drop it. It's over. It happened. Tough to do. Tough to do. But you're right. Got to do it. How about how about when we get to have an MLB closer on this show? You think they have a short term memory? Here's a, here it is. They're a 25 man roster in Major League Baseball, and the entire team is giving you the game. You got to pitch one inning, and they're leading, and you give up. Let's say you walk a guy and get a, a bloop and a, and a blast is what they call it in the big leagues, and you just gave up two runs and lost the game for your team. And guess what? You had 162 games. Right. You're coming back the next night. And how right. do you do that? Right. They talked about the uh, 
defensive back, same way. You've got to have that short, especially with the crazy rules and that kind of stuff. Otherwise, you can't play at that highest level if you're dragging that negative stuff around with you. Well, and you get burned. I mean, all, all great defensive backs get burned. You know, it's hard to you know chase these guys down. They're running so fast, but it, it is. It's that mental side of the game that's so important. And then the last thing I love what Butch talks about is putting routine. He wants you to be more decisive, which I absolutely love, but he wants you to be brisker. He wants it to have a little pace to it, not locking up over this putt and going, I've got to, you know, and you're running through your checklist. He says, commit to what you want to do and where you want your ball to start and then get in, get into that and fire away. Mm-hmm. And he talks about Ricky Fowler as a great putting routine, and I think he did. And one of the people, I, I mimicked my putting routine after Davis Love, third. I loved his. It was the same every time. I tried to do the same every time when I've seen myself on video and things like that. Like one of the things uh, we were talking uh, last week about, you know, winning a tournament and things like that. One of the things I remember when I watched myself hold a putt, I watched how how I thought my routine was really good. Well, when you say the uh, the kind of the pace uh, and the rhythm, not just of the stroke, but of your approach from being behind the ball to approaching it. Talk about that a little bit because we we always kind of talk about the rhythm of the putting stroke, but really the, the rhythm of the whole process to get to the point before you even hit it. Yeah, it's it's part of your pre-shot routine. You want you don't you don't want to hit anything indecisively. So if you can't tell if it's left edge or two balls out, do not stand over, you know, the ball going, well, I'm gonna hit it somewhere over there. Make your decision behind the ball. But get this process at a comfortable pace so that you can you all really want to react to your putt as much as you can and not try to go through a checklist about your left elbow and your mm. am I inhaling or exhaling and I see so many people talk about like what are you thinking when you're on the putting green? I'm like, hole in the putt. What do you think about on the putting green pearl when you were when you were first beginning to play and you're starting to get good you know, you could shoot even par. You should, and you got a putter in your hand. What were you thinking? Yeah, just you know, where do I need to hit this thing and hit it and go and get it and hopefully pick it out of the hole or go whack it again. You right. Know, and, and keeping it simple. And when I played my best, same thing. And when I watched you play the best, there again, there was just that rhythm through the whole routine. Step up, bing, bing. Look once, you know. You know, we kind of got when you would be looking at it. You know, get yourself set up. Take one peek. Look back down. Hit the putt. Got a little funny story on that piece right there. I was helping a junior golfer a couple of years ago, and he ended up playing in the high school finals. Good, good player, but he was really struggling with his putter. And part of the routine was to walk in there, get himself set up, look at his line, back down, boom, hit the putt. And just kind of a quick, no-thinking type of a thing. Well, I'm out there watching him, and I'll be darned. He quit, he, he quit looking up. And the poor kid's just looking down the ball and whacking away, and he got done. And he actually finished 15th in the tournament. I said to him, you know, you never looked up at any of those. He said, I knew something was a little bit off in my routine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what happens when you're so focused on trying to, you know, th- that that sort of thing will happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we talked about uh, with your putting, and, and oh, it's such a it's a huge mental part of the game. I mean, part of the mental component of putting is Well, you massive. see all different types of putting out there, and guys putt all different, all different ways. And, and I think part of it can also kind of, you know, fit your personality. Uh, you know, kind of go with that a little bit. Um, you know, uh, you, you watch Snedeker putt. Uh, you're talking about uh, Ricky, how he goes about it. Uh, you know, I think that that's part of it to, to to match who you are on top of it. One of the things, and I hate to disparage the great 
Jack Nicholas because I just love him. But one of the things that Jack did, because it worked so well for him, clearly, he stood over the ball forever, Pearl, with his putting. He absolutely stood over the ball forever. And he hold everything. I think he stood over a lot of shots forever, and I think a lot of people in this country, maybe around the world, thought that's the way you're supposed to play. That's where I was, was going with it. Was that. Good for him, and that's why I was saying it worked out great for him. But it's not necessarily the the the, the person to model all of your activities about. Jack was the first person to use what's called a pre um, a um, oh my gosh, I'm having a senior moment. Jack was the first player to have the intermediate targets, and Jack not only did one intermediate target, he used. Two intermediate really? targets. Yeah, and he did it with his putting as well. You can look at, watch him, watch next time you watch a Shell's Wonderful World of Golf or something on the golf channel. You look at Jack, he'll look about six, eight inches in front of his line and then he'll look further down. Mm. He's two, and he also did that with his long game. Well, he had his routine and certainly, uh, you know, honor that, honor everything he, that guy did. But some of the things don't, I don't know, about copying, standing over it too long. I always felt, you know, if things aren't going well, let's. Get, speed it up a little bit and get off the darn golf course. And if they are going well, let's kind of keep the momentum and keep on going. Keep some of those last-second thoughts uh, from creeping in and that type of thing. Some of the friends I've had through the years, after I goaded them a while long enough, when they played so slow and they started playing a little bit faster, they would also find that they'd play an awful lot better. Yeah, there's no no question. I mean, if if anything you want to take away from this segment, buddy, is be decisive. Be decisive. Commit to what you're trying to do. And then go with it. And two things are going to happen, Pearl. What are the two things that might happen when you putt? Ball's either going to go gonna in. make it or miss it. And if it doesn't go in, you're going to get to try again. Well, that's going to do it for the On the Range segment. Um, stay with us for the front nine at Golf with Jay Delsing. Doster, Olam, and Boyle LLC are a proud sponsor of Golf with Jay Delsing here on 101 ESPN. The firm was started in January 2015 by Mike Doster, Jess Olam, and John Boyle, three veterans of the St. Louis real estate, banking, commercial, and corporate legal landscape. The firm was founded on the shared view that success should be measured by client and community satisfaction, not profits for partner. The firm's focus is on business, real estate, corporate finance and restructuring, and succession planning. Since its founding in 2015, Doster, Olam, and Boyle have been involved in real estate, business, and corporate transactions with a combined value in excess of over $1 billion. For decades, Doster, Olam, and Boyle lawyers have been recognized as leaders in their practice areas by their peers. Doster, Olam, and Boyle, LLC. Extraordinary talent, ordinary people. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. I want to introduce you to Joe Sheezer at USA Mortgage. When I bought a new house a few years back, Joe provided me with a pre-approval letter that changed my buying experience. The real estate agents and the seller treated me as if I was a cash buyer. The sale went smoothly. I love my new digs and wanted to thank Joe and his team for giving me the highest quality of service and attention possible. Joe has been a loan officer for 25 years. He is a top producer for USA Mortgage and a true expert in the field. USA Mortgage is employee-owned and locally operated, and all processing, underwriting, and closings take place right here in St. Louis. Call Joe at 314-628-2015, and Joe's NMLS number is 281113. 
Urban Chestnut Brewing Company is proud to be an official sponsor of 101 ESPN's newest show, Golf with our friend Jay Delsing. Just like Jay, Urban Chestnut is born right here in St. Louis. With three local brewing and restaurant locations, you won't travel far to sample straight from the source. If you're heading out to the links this weekend or if you're just in the mood for a classic German-style beer, grab a four-pack of our fresh, refreshing Zwickel Bavarian Lager wherever craft beers are sold. Urban Chestnut Brewing Company, St. Louis, Missouri. Prost! You're listening to Golf with Jay Delsing on 101 ESPN. You can find Jay online at jdelsinggolf.com. Welcome back to Golf with Jay Delsing. I'm your host, Jay Delsing. I'm here with my buddy, Pearlie, and we are going to the front nine today. Um, each week on the show, if we get a, uh, an email or a question, comment, request that we read on air, which we're getting ready to do right now, that person will receive... Complimentary golf at Gateway National, courtesy of the Walters Golf Management. Such a good golf course. I think that's a great opportunity. Hey, Jay, this week uh, Austin uh, emailed us, and I think asked a great question. Uh, How many wedges should I use? I noticed some of the tour players use four, some use three. I'm 16 years old, and I have a seven handicap. I think it's a great question. You hear the, uh, the announcers all the time talking about how many different wedges are in the bag and I think that gets a little confusing. No, it sure it sure is. And Austin, first of all, good stuff. Sixteen years old, seven handicap. Um, you know what, Austin? I, so I'd, what the way I'd answer that question is I'd ask you a little bit more about your game and a little bit more about the golf courses you play. So, um, uh, without knowing that, I'm going to say do this instead of using a sixty degree wedge, go to say a fifty eight degree wedge. If you if you can get those bent, I don't want you to go run out and tell your parents you got to go. You know, buy new clubs. You certainly don't need to do that. But what we want to do, Austin, with the three wedges that I'm going to suggest you to start with is make sure your gaps are accurate, meaning we want about four degrees difference in the gaps between our clubs so that you don't have this this gaping uh, hole in your in your in your game. And that that's one sense. of the reasons why the tour players will carry four. They've gotten so long. You know, Pearl, they're getting so long, they'll hit their pitching wedge, you know, 160 yards. Yeah. I know. It's I can't relate. I can't, relate to, I can't relate to that either. And then what I do on the back end of that, bud, Austin, is think about a, a utility wood or maybe even a five wood to give you some variation and some options because of your length on how you could kind of hit some par fives and two and keep that ball on the, on the putting surface. So if you give up one of those four wedges is what you're saying, then you can go to a different part in your bag, uh, What something could be really helpful. And you see so many of the utility woods and that type of thing out there, so maybe that's a place you could go. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. and that's that's what you should do. And so hopefully that helps, Austin. And um, uh, and and it's it's a good thing that you're even thinking about stuff like that because your game's going to change. You're going to get you could be a 16 year old like I was that that wasn't developed. I wasn't as strong as I wasn't, and all of a sudden I got a little taller and 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 the ball started just going big distances. Well, am I misremembering? But I'm pretty sure we had a wedge and a sandwich when we played. Oh yeah, there's no question. I mean, I'm not this whole four wedge? thing. This yeah. whole four wedge thing right. it gets. Super confusing. Well, don't, don't forget, Tom Kite was basically the first guy to play with the third wedge, and that was a 60. All of our sand wedges, Pearl, were somewhere in the 55, 56-degree uh, uh, range. And, um, you know, that's how we learned. Nobody knew any different. 
Yeah, well, the short game is where it's at. So if you're going to kind of pick off a little, uh, little bit of extra help, that's a good place to do it. I love what you said about the, uh, the different degrees to make sure the separation there. That's going to relate right to the distance they can hit it as well, uh, I'm assuming, when they're kind of picking that out. That makes an awful lot of sense. Great, great suggestion, Jay. Well, thanks, Pearl. Yeah, you got that one right. <laughs> well, I got it something. <laughs> anyway, so I was doing some research. I came across this list. I want to spend a whole lot of time on this list, but it's interesting, I think. So, folks, this is like the who are the most influential people in golf. And um, I was shocked at who's number one, Dana Garmini, who is the uh, CEO of Troon Golf, who I know you know personally. Well, I, I did meet him through the years, and Troon Golf Management uh, it kind of is one of the trailblazers or maybe the trailblazers of the people that really started doing it right as far as managing golf courses. Now now you have some local folks doing a really good job of it as well. Yep. That's kind of the way the golf has gone uh, to uh, – cut down on expenses across the board, anywhere from marketing to operation expenses, that type of thing. And actually, there's a couple different name, uh, names on this list uh, that are associated with that. And, uh, uh, you know, management, you've got uh, Club Core on here, you've got Troon Golf on here, Billy Casper Golfs, Kemper Sports. Those are all folks uh, my company used to uh, to sell to. Yes, no question. I mean, they have number two, Jay Moynihan, our new, our new commissioner of the tour. Number three is Eric Anderson, who is the executive chairman of Top Golf. <laughs> and we know how influential that is in the industry, and we you've been do. talking about that. One on the list that was interesting is Mike Kaiser. Now, he's a developer. He's a guy that did Band and Dunes and done all these really cool courses, this new uh, Sand Hills, I think, or uh, the, the golf course in uh, Wisconsin that's just coming out this year. Uh, I've had an opportunity to play with him and know Mike Kaiser, a neat guy. And we'll go down the list. But the only thing I want to say is we've got two two professional golfers on here. we got Tiger <laughs> Woods that kind of straggles along at number seven and poor old Jack Nicholas at number nine. And i got problems with that. But yeah. Well, I, you know, what, what is the criteria? Yeah, what is the criteria with the most powerful and that kind of thing? And I think, you know, relative to kind of day in, day out uh, business operations and stuff, I'm guessing – I'm guessing that's where where they came from here. But it's kind of interesting for me to see this and recognize some of the folks that uh, I used to uh, to do business with. And uh, they certainly moved up in the world. Uh, they were doing well back in the, in the day. But uh, you know, Dana Dana at the top of the list is uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, I'll say. Um, all right, so I got a question for yep. you. Do you have any thoughts about the wraparound season? Do you have any trouble with? The tour not wanting to go up against football. We're going to end our year, what, the last week of August, I believe, this year. Does everybody even know what the wraparound season means? Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So we're going to end our season. The tour championship is going to end, I think, the last week in August. So the whole idea is is we don't want to go up ratings-wise, and we don't want our product going up against the NFL. Mm Mm-hmm. We just get smoked in the ratings. Well, I mean, that makes sense. The part that's awkward to me is now when we're talking about, well, who did the best in 2018? Well, 2017 and 2018 and back and forth. I think the fact that it doesn't start in January, I don't know that it matters to me when it ends at the end of the year. That makes some sense to me. But just the whole thing kind of makes sense. But it is a little bit of an awkward feel. And plus, those early events seem to me to get so little attention that these guys are coming out with wins all of a sudden uh, before true. January, and that seems awkward. It's 100% true, and that's what my point is, Pearl, because right now, in my opinion, we're going through the best stretch of golf on TV. It's just so fun. But the wraparound season is just awkward, I think. It's like, well, you won a tournament this year, but it was last year. Right. But it counts for, you know, so so the folks that, that, that won an event 
in September and October, that basically counts for the 2019 season, even though it happened in 2018. So it's, you know, when you look at the NFL, since we're talking about it, you know, the regular, um, the the games that are regularly scheduled happen in one year, and then the Super Bowl happens in another yeah, so year. So, a bit of a maybe yeah. we're the only ones that worry about the wraparound. Now that we think yeah. about it, should we, should we drop the wraparound? <laughs> Let's talk about how cool the, the 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 stretch of golf is that's on TV right now. You had the Phoenix Waste Management Open just a little while ago in Pebble Beach, and then you have man, you got Riviera, you've got World Golf Championship down in Mexico, you've got. The Honda, which is the first event on the on the East Coast, and then you've got, oh my gosh, Arnold Palmer's events in there. You got Valspar's in there. You've got the the players is in March. We're coming up on March with the scheduling thing, and there's another World Golf Championship event. And um, well, it's a good time of year for me because when football's over, I get it's a little bit of a bummer. So all of a sudden we have this. Great golf, spectacular golf to watch, and we're getting kind of double dipping sometime when, with the European Tour, uh, with some pretty epic events they've got going over there as well. Yeah, we mentioned it before. It's a, did you ever, in your wildest dreams, think there'd be you could catch golf twenty four seven? No, but there again, Arnold Palmer pushing that a long time ago. Uh, I remember again being in the golf industry at that point. People saying he's absolutely crazy. This is never going to work. This is never going to make any sense. My guess is they're making money right now. And lots of it. He's the king for yeah. a lot of reasons, yeah. and he, he uh, man, he has uh, had some really cool uh, opportunities to play golf with him. We'll have to talk about that sometime. Um, what a, uh, what a treasure he was. But um, one last thing I wanted to talk about. It's kind of a small topic, but I think we need to talk about it. This this idea of backstopping on tour. So, folks, here's what backstopping is. I'm playing around a golf with you. You and I are coming down, you know, we're competing for whatever it is, whatever position. And my ball is resting within a couple inches of the hole. And I leave that ball there so that if your chip shot comes up and hits my ball, I get to replace my ball and your ball stays wherever it, go- wherever it goes. And um, Jimmy Walker, of all people... Kind of an odd name to bring up, but he had this comment where he said, "Yeah, if you're playing with some of your friends, you'll leave it up there if you like the guy in case you wow. can help him out." And I just—that's a problem. Yeah, I just said I did, and I, to me, never once entered my mind that I would do that for anybody. I don't care if it was my brother or you playing out there. You know, someone I love dearly. I wouldn't. I don't want to do it. Yeah. And I think that's so odd. And it came up. A month or so ago at the Sony Open in the last group with Matt Kutcher and um, Andrew Putnam. And they they called backstopping, and I said, wait a minute, there is no way. They said Andrew Putnam should have went up and marked his ball. And there's no way it was done intentionally, Pearl. He would have never left his ball there intentionally. He just doesn't want to help Matt Kutcher. Right. There's no way in hell. And I just uh, I don't buy into it. I, I wouldn't do it. But you have a responsibility to protect the field. Just talk about that a little bit because that needs to be understood with this whole backstopping. Yeah, so that's one of the reasons why you don't keep your own scorecard. I'm keeping yours. You're keeping mine. Brad, you know, we all change cards because you have a responsibility as a competitor to protect. What they mean by protecting the field is to make sure that you don't take advantage of the rule somewhere. Mm-hmm. 
and make sure that, you know, Brad's making sure I don't and, you know, vice versa. We're all, you know, that's the responsibility that you have to the group. So that's the consistency. It's not about friends and buddies and, you know, we'll leave it here, there, here, and there. I can remember back in amateur golf, college golf, mini tour golf, that that type of thing could come up from time to time. And the other one is that one guy would want to quick hit it while that other guy's ball's up there, not give him a chance to go mark it and get it out of the way. That's not obviously okay either. Right. So, that's, that's a, you know, Pearl, it's all against the spirit of the competition. Exactly, it's exactly. just against the spirit of the competition. And it's, there's not going to be a rule per se that I know of or anything, but it's just against the spirit of what you think uh, or what we think, um, you know, should happen. So, um, well, I don't, I don't really think it's a problem on tour. We'll keep our eye out for it. Um, with all the other know, rules. Yeah. With all the other crazy rules dropping from your knee looks really good. Um, but that's going to wrap up the front nine today. Don't go anywhere. This is Golf with Jay Delsing. We're going to come back with a back nine. Are you looking for a golf training facility and PGA pros to help you out year-round? Make sure you get to Golf Tech. They've been in St. Louis since 2007 and have three convenient locations to serve you. They've got state-of-the-art video equipment, and you can take your lesson home with you and replay it as much as you'd like. Start with a golf swing evaluation for only $125 and let a Golf Tech coach customize a game plan for you. 314-721-GOLF. You can find them online as well, golftech.com St. Louis. Play better. Swing better. Golf Tech. I got a big shout out and a thank you to Whitmore Country Club for supporting my golf show. I don't know if you know, Whitmore Country Club has 72 holes of golf. There's a 24-hour fitness center and has a extremely large pool complex. This is a family-friendly country club to belong to. There's a kids club in the main clubhouse right near the fitness center. There are golf leagues, skinned games. Members, tournaments, couples, events are available all year long. If you join at Whitmore, you also get access to the Missouri Bluffs, the Links of Dardeen, and the Golf Club of Wentzville. And the cart fees are already included in that membership. There are no food or beverage minimums, no assessments. Go out and see my friend Bummer out in the clubhouse. He is an absolute jewel and a wonderful guy that will tell you all you need to know. Or you can call Whitmore at 636-926-9622. After 25 years on the PGA Tour, Jay Delsing takes you behind the scenes from the eyes of a pro. Now back to more golf with Jay Delsing on 101 ESPN. Welcome back to Golf with Jay Delsing. I'm your host, Jay. I've got my favorite caddy, John, here with me. And we are headed to the back nine, Pearly, but... Not before I get to tell the folks about Woodmore Country Club. 72 holes of golf at Woodmore. I'm not sure. I know another place that's got 72 holes. That's not some sort of resort. That's, in, that's impressive. You are always going to find a place to play at Whitmore. There, there is also complimentary golf at any of the other uh, Whitaker facilities, which would be the Missouri Bluffs, the Links of Dardeen, and the Golf Club of Wentzville. Your card fees are already included at those places with the Whitmore membership. No food or beverage minimums, no assessments, but they do have a great 24-hour fitness center, large pool complex, tennis courts. Man, we are, we are talking about a, a family-friendly, family-oriented environment that, that you just got to see. There's a, a year-round social calendar. The holiday parties were spectacular this year. There's picnics and date nights, live music. There's a kids' club. 
and much more. There's junior golf for your for your sons and daughters. There's junior tennis, the swim team, everything you need, anything you could want is out at Whitmore. For your golf needs, there's golf leagues and skins games, members tournaments, couples events, and then there's my buddy Bummer. He's a head pro out there. He's one of the coolest, most authentic people you'll ever want to meet, so you got to go over and say hi to Bummer. You can call him at 636-926-9622, extension 130. Is that a place where I can get uh, go back to being 14, 15 years old, get dropped off about 645 in the morning and play till dark? Uh-huh, and, and play 72 holes. And when you play 72 holes, you don't have to play the same one over again. I love that. Brings back some sweet memories of uh, getting to play all day long, and uh, you're not going to get bored out there. And, you know, that's the one thing that I just I, I just marvel at what golf did for us. It just gave us that that um, that venue and that outlet to get our sports jones on, to get our competitive nature on. We got exercise. We didn't even know it. And we met the most incredible people over the years. Fun people our age got to play. You were obviously a very good player. I was decent as a junior, so all of a sudden we're playing with the the older folks, the established business people. It was just a great experience. You know, one of the many bonuses of golf, even from those early days. So, how old were you when you started getting good enough? Where someone of, and I don't want to be too gushy about this, but someone that was outside of your family's kind of mm-hmm. circle. That wanted to play with you, and and you know I can remember my dad. You know my dad started off as like a twenty five handicapper because he just didn't play that much. Obviously a great athlete, major league ball player, but uh, you know not a sophisticated guy. My dad finished high school at night and things like that, but great guy, fantastic Lo- guy, loved by fantastic many. Fantastic guy. But, but I was soon out of that circle, you know, that I grew up in. All of a sudden I was getting and. Meeting other people, and they're like, I heard, you know, I heard you shot 69, and, you know, and I was like, yes, sir, I did. You know, well, you want to come over and play with me? I'm like, why the hell would you want to play with me? You know, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, you're asking the question for me. You know, I didn't start till I was 13, so I would say somewhere in that 15, 16 uh, range, you know, when I'm going out there and uh, winning the club champion championship as a junior, um, that you know, kind of help that situation. And then you find yourself in a couple of Nassau's and a couple other kind of games. And uh, there's a whole different way that you're interacting with these folks. And that's paid dividends the rest of my life. Oh, it really has. I mean, we've talked about this. We'll continue to talk about how the game provides and has provided us and continue to, to provide for us in, um, oh man, a multitude of ways. It's, it's uh, spectacular. I can remember one time grew up at North Shore Country Club, which is a really nice, soybean field up in North County right now. And um, they had this little skin game where, um, I don't know, um, everybody threw in like five or ten bucks or whatever it was. And my dad and I played down there and I won, well, I forget this, $64. Now, you got to remember, I'm like four, 13, 14, 64 bucks is like a million dollars to me. And um, my dad goes, give it back. <laughs> And I, I looked around to see who he was talking to because I had already counted it, folded it, I, you know, stuffed, stuffed, uh, stuffed it in my sock somewhere. And I said, give it back. And he goes, give it back. Wow. Where is this coming from, Chief? And he was afraid. Are you ready for this? That that $64 would affect my amateur standing. <laughs> I thought he was going to be afraid that you're going to love the game and want to go bet some more. Oh, that was already on. That was already on, Pearl. That was on for sure. But um, 
Yeah, funny story. I remember that was one quiet ride home after I had to give back that 64 bucks. I had something a little bit similar, similar playing with the guy that was the club champion and with my dad and him and another guy. And I won $32, half that amount. And I remember he paid me by check. So that was kind of interesting on top of that as well. So, yeah, it, it, a big deal back then. Let, let, my dad said keep it, by the way. He didn't suggest giving it back. <laughs> and could, your dad wouldn't have. I, know, I knew your dad well, and I miss him as much as I miss my dad. about my amateur status. No, that's right. He was going to take the money, son. <laughs> how many times, this is great, how many times have you gone out and played with excessively wealthy people that will lose 20, 50, maybe even 100 bucks if it gets out of hand in a friendly match and have no money to pay you. Yeah. Quite a few times. <laughs> I, a few I, times. I just, I, I can't believe it where I'm, you know, the guy I'll get into his, you know, $150,000 car and walk away stiffing me out of $40 because he doesn't even carry well, any I'm cash. Sure with they're him. stiffing you. They're going to pay you next time. You don't understand the candy <laughs> mentality. You always paid your bets. You always. Whip, Always whip outs. That's whip what outs. it was. Six hole, you lose the bet. I mean, I've played yep. with the guys. That's ten bucks, and they went right they, now. Yeah, exactly. give it to me. Yep. There's something to that. That's maybe why I don't have any money. <laughs> those uh, those wealthy guys. You know, I felt like I always had to carry the money in my pocket. What did Trevino say? The real pressure was when you're playing for ten bucks and you only had two in your pocket. Something I've been like through. That. I've been through so, that. Was that not it? Yeah, that's pretty close. I, close. Yeah, but uh, you played with him a couple times and had a few bets here and there with him. You want to Did. say you want to save it, or you want to tell one of those stories? Oh, well, let's save it because You're we're right. trying to tie it, it with a. Uh, they're just fantastic. The uh, the uh, different people, different personalities, the games yeah. brought out. Let's talk about this tour life segment that uh, we created, Pearl. I think this will be interesting. We um, we want to take a day, and each day on uh, on life on tour, and talk a little bit about what a Thursday is going to be like. Okay, because. You know, every day is different. A Monday, uh, you know, Mondays are like our weekends and Tuesdays are practice rounds. Depending on how well you know the course, you might go home. This, but Thursdays are not. Thursday is, the, you know, it's the first round of the tournament. The gun's going off, baby. The, the gun is going off. They're dropping the puck, so to speak, whatever you want to call it. And um, one of the things that was really hard to get used to was the morning, the late early or early mm-hmm. late tea times. And, folks, what that means is you – so the, the field is cut in half. Each uh, Thursday and Friday, while they're trying to make the cut, and uh, let's the, the late early time will be you play late on Thursday afternoon, somewhere after twelve o'clock, maybe as late as two thirty, depending on daylight savings time or whatnot, and then you come back the very next morning. You know, tee off at seven, and what they try to do there is try to even it out weather wise golf course condition-wise, things like that. So you get one early round, one late round. So one of the things that's interesting, I seem to prefer the late early rounds, especially if I was playing well. I played well. You know, it's late at night. Throw my clubs in the car. Maybe do a little practicing afterwards. Go get something to eat. Go right to bed and come back. And it always felt like that round was kind of fresh in your mind. I had a couple of examples where I had the early late times where I had a really good round and I'd be in the top five or ten on the leaderboard and come to the golf course for my afternoon round on Friday and be in 40th position. Mm. I'll never forget a John Deere a couple times shooting four or five or six under par the first round, playing in the morning, 
come back, you know, grab. I'm going to grab a little lunch at the club and do a little workout and then go play. Come to the golf course around noon. Not in the top 30. Leave the golf course. Welcome to the tour. Welcome to the tour. You know, Pearl, someone told me someone is always shooting 64. And nowadays, it's almost like someone's always shooting 62. And uh, the Thursday's rounds were interesting. You know, there was um, many times where despite the fact that they were trying to equalize the weather situations out, I can remember one time, Pearl, I was on the wrong side of this. We were playing up in Toronto, and I was early on Thursday. So I had an early late. We had the remnants. uh, It was only a tropical storm at the time, but we had the remnants of a hurricane that was coming through Toronto at the time. And we were out playing, and on the front nine, before play was suspended, because it was also raining like hell, but we didn't get enough... They're not going to blow it for wind, but they'll blow it if the you know course is unplayable with water. And I can remember playing three of the par fours that I couldn't reach in two. Wow. So check this out. So we went and played 12 holes in those conditions. I think I was four over par. No good. Right. Not bad compared to our, our field. We waited out, waited out, and waited out. We sit around for three, four hours. All of a sudden... The weather behind this storm is perfect. Now you got to remember, folks. Half the field hasn't even teed off. The other, fo- the other, you know, haven't played. I played twelve holes. They may have only played three. So I go out there four over par. I think I rallied a little bit and got it back to like maybe one over par for that round. But the scores were perfect. The golf course was soaking wet. We can talk about what the weather does to the courses mm-hmm. and what makes it harder, what does not, because people probably don't know that. But I can remember, miss the cut, we had, I think it was 18 or 16 or 18 people from our half of the field make the cut. That's it. So that's how lopsided that was. So if it was 16 people of the 70 that made the cut, you know, 54 from the other side, that is really lopsided. That doesn't happen very often. And it's a real, usually around quirky weather like that. But the other thing we need to talk about, Pearl, is that that uh, the weather softening the golf course with rain doesn't raise scores like people think it does. Now, cold will. Wind does the most. Wind has the most effect. That is definitely the equalizer. So that Thursday, getting back to wrapping up the thought of these Thursdays, the late early, the conditions playing in the morning was always my favorite because the greens were perfect. Remember before the agronomy got so good, Pearl, where guys were actually still wearing nails in the bottom of our shoes and spiking up the heck out of the greens and not being able to fix them? You can fix spike marks now. Yeah, a lot of changes in that whole late early, keeping it fair, keeping it consistent, because it certainly was many times back back in the day, it wasn't. Yeah, and still, and, and, nowadays still, but like you said, the, the rules have changed it and helped that even out even more. And the agronomy and their ability to, to yes. take care of the courses, soft spikes have helped a tremendous amount. Well, that's going to do it for the back nine segment. Don't go anywhere because we're going to our favorite part of this show and favorite part of the round of golf. Come back. 
Golf with Jay Delsing in the 19th hole. Jerseyville Carpet and Furniture Gallery are a proud sponsor of Golf with Jay Delsing. They've been around since 1973, and it's been family-owned and operated the entire way. Father Danny Capps started it all. Now sons Matt and Jared are fully involved. And at Jerseyville Carpet and Furniture Gallery, they host the area's largest selection of Lazy Boy and Flex Steel furniture. Plus, you'll find a full-service Mohawk Color Center featuring carpet, hardwood, laminate, and waterproof flooring. Everything is professionally installed at Jerseyville Carpet and Furniture Gallery, plus easy delivery and setup of new furniture however and wherever you want it. They'll also haul away all of your old furniture. Can't beat that deal. Going the extra mile, that's what Jerseyville Carpet and Furniture Gallery is all about. Find them online, jerseyvillecarpetfurniture.net, or call them 618-639-9858. Most people think to get fit, you've got to be in the gym five days a week. Well, I used to think that too, but that was before I discovered 20 Minutes to Fitness. 20 Minutes to Fitness makes it possible to achieve in one 20-minute session a week what might require three hours or more a week at the gym. It reduces the time it takes to exercise by up to 90%. Their trainers can get you in shape no matter what your age or fitness level. They do it using special equipment and safe, medically-based approach. And all it takes is 20 minutes once a week. Honestly, 20 minutes once a week. Sound too good to be true? Your first session is free, so try it and see for yourself. They've got locations in Clayton and Chesterfield. To learn more, visit 20MinutesToFitness.com. 20 Minutes to Fitness. It's just 20 minutes just once a week, and it works for me. You're listening to Golf with Jay Delsing on 101 ESPN. You can get involved in the show by emailing your questions and comments to jay at jdelsinggolf.com. Well, thanks for staying with us. We just finished 18 holes, and we're headed to our favorite part of the golf experience, the 19th hole. This is Golf with Jay Delsing. I'm Jay here with my buddy, Pearly, and, uh, well, welcome to the 19th hole, Pearly. Yeah, yeah, let's just finish up the conversation that we were talking about, uh, kind of how Thursday is out on uh, on the tour. Yeah, so, man, we got to jump into this. This is really fun. I, I, I had no idea what this, this segment was going to, and this thought and this idea was going to take us here, but we got to go. These, these, are, these are fun stories. There's a lot of, wait a second, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot on of the caddy. anxiousness. On Look, the caddy. We're a team. We're a t- are, we, are we a team? We're or a team. team. We are a team. You know, you, you, I am so delighted, though. I got to say this. I am so <laughs> delighted I didn't feel this kind of pressure. Go ahead. Well, no, you tell the damn story. You're all excited about it. <laughs> so, folks. We would get together after a good night's sleep, Wednesday night, get ready for our Thursday morning, let's say morning tea time, and we'd meet down for breakfast somewhere. Jay would have it planned out. When are we going to meet down? Just kind of have a real clean schedule. How long is it going to take to drive to the golf course? Where are we going to eat breakfast? All those kind of things. So that there's a bit of, as we've already talked about, there's a bit of a rhythm uh, to the morning, and, and we know what to expect. And so we get down to breakfast. I can't remember exactly where we were. That's not re- not relevant. But it is a Thursday. And I look at you, and you look like you've been in a fist fight. Wait, wait a second. Where was it? It was every week. <laughs> right. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to throw you under the bus, but let's go ahead and toss you there. So I'm looking at my buddy, and I'm like, man, I'm excited for this. We've got to have fun. We're going to order some, some healthy food here, get ourselves all charged up. And I'm looking at you. You look like you've just gone 15 rounds with Muhammad Ali, and it didn't go well. I, was, I had another one of those dreams, I, the, the, that dreaded dream. You know, when I would play, there was a certain kind of dream. You know, in my life, I've probably had, I think, two positive dreams in golf. The rest of them are, are nightmares. 
And the dream I would really? have, caddying, caddying for you is, I'd lose your bag. <laughs> I would lose your golf bag and then toss it and turn the rest of the night looking for it. And I'm running around. And they're called Jay Delsing to the T, Jay Delsing to the T. You're looking at me. I'm looking at you. I'm like, I don't know where your golf, where golf bag is. That is so classic. So, so whenever, you know, John's got to go relieve himself or go grab something, grab something. He, he look, he's going to set my bag down. He looks at me like, I got it, man. Don't worry. We're not going to lose this golf bag. I promise you. I would be so paranoid about that all the time. And it was, uh, it was overwhelming. It was, I was definitely worn out when I woke up that morning. Do you remember the time that I flew up to Michigan to caddy for you for the U.S. Amateur qualifying? Yes, I do. Okay. So we stayed at a good friend's house. We had a great night. I woke up. I'm so fortunate I don't have crazy dreams like this. <laughs> but I look at you, and I'm like, oh, man, what happened? And you're like, I had the worst dream I've ever had and for golf. Like, what happened? You have bad dreams for golf? What do you mean? What This is, you know, we were young. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? What happened? Well, I qualify. I'm in the USAM. I make it through this qualifying. I'm like, well, that sounds pretty good. You have a listen. I get on the first tee, and now from, you know, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, on the tee, John Perlis. And you go up there, and Perley tees his ball up. You're making me sweat just telling the story. He's, he's, he gets behind the ball to get a v- good visual look of where he's going. He's got his target out and everything. He walks up to address the ball, and in between <laughs> the time he's behind the ball and the time he's addressed the ball, someone has come in. And built a brick wall about six inches behind his ball. <laughs> I can barely get the driver in there. <laughs> so, folks, Pearlie's making, showing me these little motions where he's literally got the, the, the driver head sitting between the wall and the ball. And he's lifting it straight up over his head thinking, I think I can hit this. <laughs> and, he, and he's just sweaty and not so, oh, man, those... um. Those are funny, funny stories. They're funny stories. Uh, I'm not the only one that has had those no. stories. Ironically, you hear people share it from the time to time, and I wish I could have dealt with them better. I can remember going through tour school. I almost made it the one year on uh, through tour school at uh, some of the places you were telling the earlier stories out there at PGA West and La Quinta Dunes. And I played some really strong golf. And the bottom line is one of the main things that uh, kind of caused me from making it, I was so you're laughing. This isn't that funny. <laughs> I was so worn out by the time the sixth round, because it's six rounds going through tour school out there. I was so worn out from not, not sleeping, not eating. I'm glad you get a sense I'm of humor. Sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I, you know, ignorance is bliss on my side of the table. Well, a question, because I, I think back on those, the fifth and the sixth rounds, and, and you know, it's something you've never done before. No. You never prepared for a fifth round. You have no idea what to do for the sixth and round. And I'm playing PGA West. Yeah, and you know it's a, it's and basically back in the day that's a double bogey on every hole. I mean, you could lose a ball. That the, the the golf course was so much different. That's at what the I time. was dreaming about for crying out loud. That's why I, I couldn't know, sleep. And I think about that, and I, I I didn't realize it. Just made me feel so fortunate that I never experienced any of those. Uh, those I sort was of I was uh, staying with a friend in uh, Houston in between uh, second stage and third stage of uh, of tour one year, and. <laughs> You're going to remind me of another thing. No, you're not bringing that up on the air. And literally, I'm tossing and turning, tossing and turning, and I get up at somewhere between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm staying on a lake. I grab a, a six iron that I happen to have in my, in my room. That ought to tell you something. And a couple of golf balls walk outside the back door, 
and just launch them into the lake in the dark. I needed to get into my brain that I could get the ball airborne because I was dreaming that I was playing and I couldn't get the ball off the ground. <laughs> these are these are tough things to drag around. I mean, at the end of the day, I played pretty well when you consider what I was dragging around. <laughs> what you put yourself through. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we had Brett Hull on oh, months, um, a couple months ago, and he said his biggest fear in hockey was that he was never going to score another goal. So, you know, Fear is a gigantic motivating factor. The problem with the stuff that you're dealing with, and, you know, it's so disruptive from your yeah. rest standpoint, you know, where you – and that's where you, you know, feel rejuvenated or try to feel rejuvenated, and that's a tough one. Yeah. At the end of the day, I'm not sure how to get out of it. If there's any suggestions, you all can write in on that too. My playing days are certainly long over as far as any competition goes, but uh, – and I don't have those dreams well, that's not true. I do have those dreams once in a while. <laughs> I was going to say Ambien, but that's probably not a good. <laughs> probably not. No, that's um, that is really funny. But the Thursdays, um, you know, there's that old saying: you can't win the tournament on Thursday or Friday, but you sure can lose it. And that's kind of to your point. I think um, when we start talking about the mental aspects, it's clearly in the mental aspect of the game. And Thursday is a big deal. I can remember reading a quote from Vince Lombardi that talked about. The outcome of a football game is going to be decided on one or two plays. It might be the opening kickoff. It might be the last play of the, the ball game. The problem is we don't know when. And we don't have the luxury. So he's talking to his 53 men on the football team. We don't have the luxury of taking a playoff. Meaning, oh, I'm just going to walk through this one. I don't care. That's what I mean by taking a playoff. It's the same way in golf. You don't have, you know, I can remember when I was first learning about the mental side of it and when I would, it used to aggravate me so much, Pearl, because I never felt like I could get away with being out of it mentally for just even a slight, as soon as I was out of it mentally, my ball went into the worst places. And it just motivated me to try to get my head into what I was trying to do more. Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, there's two or three key parts. Definitely when I was playing my best golf, I would kind of have that sense. And I would kind of have the sense, sometimes you could stand up and kind of know which shot that might be as well. To your point, you had to be in it for the whole the whole way around. But there was normally a key shot where, and it might be a pitch out for crying out loud, but some place to, how do I get this thing back on track? Or here's this opportunity kind of in in my wheelhouse on this par five, whatever the case might be. And if you could take advantage of that, you know, and when I work with uh, different businesses, I see, I see the same thing. There's a few opportunities. We don't want to miss those things. They don't come around all the time. How important is making the right decision on oh, those opportunities? Well, and I think that's, that's what you're trying that's to pair up. Hitting the about. shot's one thing, but part of the hitting that right the shot is having the right shot in mind to even try to hit. Yeah, there's no question about it and I can look at, at back at early in my career and just how I derailed myself with some of the decision making process. But that I, was some of the fun part about caddying. You know, I mean, the bottom line is we know each other very well. I understood your swing. I, you could uh, you know easily turn to me and say, you know, you know what what what's going on here? Why is this feeling uncomfortable? But also when you would say Hey, I think it's a you know cut seven iron. If you said it with confidence and you were into the shot, I might think it's the worst idea in the world. I was going to say, absolutely, Jay, go for it. If there was any question in your mind, so back to that decision and your question, not that I've got a better answer per se, but if I hear a question in your 
question. If I hear uh, concern uh, or doubt in when you're asking the question, I'm going to ask you to back off pretty much every time and say, hey, let's remember something. Three different clubs could work here. Two different shapes, different trajectory. Which one can you plug into? Let's look at the lie again. Let's look at the wind again and kind of go through it again and make sure that that decision's matching the situation. Yeah, 100% of the time. It goes back to the most important thing that you do is be decisive. Be committed to what you're doing. Yeah, I'd rather be decisive with the wrong club. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, man. Well, what's, the, what's the Delsey motto on that? Uh, often wrong, never in doubt. Oh, often wrong, seldom in doubt. Seldom in doubt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah never in doubt. Yeah, that, that's that pretty much it. Yeah, that fits as well. Yeah, that's but pretty there's, much true. There's a lot of value to that. There's a lot of value to that is complete commitment to whatever the shot is. Um, yeah. Then, then a oh, bad decision, you might miss a little bit long here or there, but you're not going to necessarily miss it sideways when you're indecisive. You know, we talk, we've talk. we talked about, you know, other athletes and other guys that are playing this game. And I mean, it is a, that is a universal concept that, um, you know, plays out here. And, I, and, and in your business, with your business acumen and the things that you're doing with businesses, it's the same thing, Pearl. It's right. It's about getting committed to something. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's, that's a huge key. And that's one of the places you're going to learn. You and I have talked about that before. If we're not committed and you still make the putt, it's almost a negative because it's kind of said, hey, I cannot be committed and make a putt. That's a bad, bad habit to get into. So there's really not an upside. Yeah, it'd be nice to get away with it, I suppose, once in a while, but not if it's going to start forming a bad habit on how you're going through your pre-shot uh, routine. Yeah, so if you're going to take anything away from our Thursday segment, it's get committed to what you're trying to do, even if it's the wrong shot or theoretically what a broadcaster might decide is the wrong play. Stay committed to it. You're much better off. Hit a great shot that's a little bit wrong. We're okay. Yeah, absolutely. Man, this show just flew by. Well, that's going to do it for the 19th hole. I love the 19th hole. It goes by so quickly. Pearly, thanks so much for being with me this morning. Enjoy um, it as always, Jay. Uh, Big Sis, thanks so much for working the board. Folks, um, write to us, Jay at jdelsingolf.com. That's J-A-Y at J-A-Y-D-E-L-S-I-N-G-G-O-L-F.com. And uh, hit them straight, St. Louis. That was Golf with Jay Delsing, brought to you by Whitmore Country Club. Tune in next Sunday from 7 to 8 for more from Jay, John, and the other pros and experts from the golf world. In the meantime, you can find all of Jay's shows at 101ESPN.com, as well as at jdelsinggolf.com.